That's a classic phrase, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, some of you know what I mean. Uh, I have been most fortunate to have enjoyed her friendship for quite a few years. I have also heard her talk many times at various places all over this country. I was present the first time that she ventured out of Texas to talk at her first conference. At that time, during one of our conversations, I casually mentioned to her, I'll see you in New York. And she said, what do you mean? I told her I expected that sometime in the future she would be a Texas Al-Anon delegate. She laughed, and that was that. Several months later, I received a letter, you remember, <laughs> which began, Dear Prophet Paul. <laughs> she had been elected the West Texas Salonon delegate, and we served together at the World Service Conference. Uh, incidentally, I have always admired, uh, respected, and enjoyed the Texas brand of AA and Al-Anon. It is basic, honest, straightforward, and fundamentally the big book type of AA and Al-Anon. It's my privilege to present to you from Odessa, Texas, a beautiful example of the Texas brand of Al-Anon, Blanche, and I'm going to use your full name, Blanche. <laughs> My name is Blanche, and I'm a recovering Alamon. Hi. And I have been a member of the Suburban Alamon Group in Odessa, Texas, since July of 1964. In Texas, we give dates, and I'm more comfortable doing it that way. Besides, I think that has some advantages. Um, for one thing, if something has worked in your program for you for two weeks, I will listen. But if it has worked for you for 10 years, I'm likely to listen a little more carefully. Then too, if I know how long you've been around this fellowship, I pretty well know where you're coming from. And so I will let you know that my husband and I have 15 years last month. We had a big party to celebrate. And yet I think so often that every day since we've been with you all is a celebration. I do thank the committee for this invitation. I have been excited about coming. I have enjoyed and appreciated the beautiful accommodations and the delicious food, and I think I would probably enjoy your landscape if I could see it. <coughs> My husband and I drove through Tennessee in 1976 on our way back from Boston to Texas, and the entire time we were in this state, it rained as if someone had turned a fire hose on us, and we didn't see beyond the hood of the car. So I had looked forward to coming this time and getting a look at Tennessee, and I wish those of you who have some control would clear it up by tomorrow <laughs> when I start driving home. This is my second Southeastern. I talked in Birmingham in 1973 and um, had a good time. It was, uh, it was at that time the, the biggest one I had attended, and I thought it was exciting and stimulating. But I have never talked in Tennessee before. I've wanted to for a long time, but for one reason or another, I haven't been able to come when I was asked to come. 
Tennessee, you may or may not know, contributed very greatly to the history of Texas. I wanted to uh, see Maryville yesterday where Sam Houston came from. So some of us drove there and looked. And Stephen Austin and David Crockett and so on. There are ties that we share. I noticed on your chalkboard out there where you have people registered from the different states that there are three from Texas. Arroy and I can't figure out who the third one is, but we figured three out of 1,400 was about the right odds, and so we're, we're comfortable enough with you here. <laughs> I have been to a family reunion in Florida a week ago today, in fact, was the reunion, and it was great. And I don't make them every year. In fact, it had been nine years since I had been to one. And the little ones had grown, you know, and the rest of us had gotten older. And I had a marvelous time. But I told my husband as we left that I felt that in a very real sense, I was coming to Knoxville to a family reunion too. Because you are indeed my family and my people. I think any time any of us get together, it is a family reunion. I have been trying the last few years to be more open and more vulnerable when I talk, to take the risk of letting you know who I really am. I have learned that that which does not come from the heart does not reach the heart, and I very much want to reach your hearts this morning. And this is still scary for me, and I'm not good at it yet. For an awfully long time, I could talk about the program, but I could not talk about me. And I could tell you what the literature said, and I could tell you what I thought but not what I felt. And I'm trying these last few years to relate on a feeling level. And uh, I'm coming from way behind there. Some of you do that instinctively, but I'm having to learn it. And that means that this morning I will need you loving me back as I talk. I will try to speak from my heart and not my head, and I will need you listening with your hearts and not just your heads. I am here to participate and not to perform, and I have only one story. Those of you who have told me how many other places you've heard me, and uh, or, or tapes that you've heard, and if you came anyway, then that has to be your problem, because I can't go out and do it all over again, just to have something different to tell you. I came into Al-Anon kicking and screaming and clutching my halo and wrapping my robes of righteousness about me and telling everyone who would listen that I was fine, thank you. And if they would just help my husband, there was nothing wrong with me. I am so grateful that God led me to a group of people who were serious about recovery. It was not a coffee clash. It was not a ladies auxiliary. It was not a sewing circle. It was a group of people who were sick and tired of being sick and tired and who wanted to get well. And I couldn't have heard any other kind. Now, it took a while before I heard them. But I truly believe that God sends us the people we need when we need them. And these were exactly the people I needed. I used to say that I came in as a typical Alamon, and I have learned that that brings different pictures to different minds, and I don't use that term without explanation anymore. Depends on what your idea is of the typical Alamon. I usually stop here and dispel a rumor that I'm sure you have heard too, that all alcoholics, without exception, are either handsome or beautiful, talented, intelligent, sensitive, and sexy. Have you heard that one? And I won't argue with that, but the other part is that they are inevitably married to dull, mouthy people. Now, if that's your idea of a typical alimony, you can forget it. I'd like, too, to clarify our terms. 
I don't know if you have this problem in this part of the country, but we do in Texas. So for the benefit of uh, defining our words, an Al-Anon is not automatically someone who has a relative or a friend in AA. And a member of AA who introduces a husband or wife as my Al-Anon is sometimes using a misnomer. An Al-Anon is a member of an Al-Anon family group who works the program and who attends meetings regularly. And that's all. You do have that problem. <laughs> and Al-Anon is for individual recovery. It, is not, it does not exist as a therapeutic tool for the treatment of alcoholism. It does not promise to save your marriage, only your sanity. And I think if we come in uh, with a clearer idea of what it is than what I had when I came in, we would be better off. Another rumor I might mention, there are those who feel that during the drinking years, the non-alcoholic man or woman uh, sat home knitting while the alcoholic did his thing. I thought I'd better say that there are some of us who did, and there are some of us who did the same things the alcoholic did, and we did them cold sober. So let's don't have any illusions about each other as we start this morning. Our stories disclose in a general way what we were like and what happened and what we're like now. I was born in Florida, the third generation Floridian. I grew up there. I lived in Jacksonville until I was 10 and then in Pensacola until I married. I got to Texas because I went to college out there. I went to Baylor University and that's where it happened to be. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I come from a long line of peasants and they really suspected book learning. <laughs> when I wanted to go that far away to school, uh, my mother was just a little apprehensive. She said, well, it's all right with me if you want to go to college in Texas, but you might as well make up your mind that you'll spend the rest of your life out there. Because, she said, you'll end up marrying a Texan and they don't transplant. <laughs> that wasn't in my plans at all, but I did and they don't and I have. And so she was right. And she was about everything else. I have been very happy in Texas. I cannot imagine living anywhere else. I have gotten very homesick through the years for the blue waters and the white sands of Florida, and I get back regularly. But uh, whenever I do come back into this humidity, I'm afraid if I take a deep breath, I'll drown. And if I stand still, something will start growing on me, and I guess I have been on the desert too long. <laughs> I do not know how you all keep a hairdo out here. On the desert, we wrinkle early, but our hair curls. You know, you can't, you can't have everything. <laughs> My father was an alcoholic. He, um, he was a violent alcoholic. Um, we were desperately poor. I couldn't talk about this for a long time when I started talking. I don't mean we didn't have luxuries. I mean not enough to eat, not enough to wear, kind of grinding poverty. It has nothing to recommend it. It does not ennoble the human character. It is a debasing and a degrading way to live. And when I talk in the Deep South, I can say things like, we used to live for weeks at a time on hoe cake and sugar, and you know what hoe cake is. <laughs> I, I can't say that many places because they don't know what it is. I was a big girl before I learned that some people have milk on cereal. We had water on ours. I am not aiming for your pity, okay? I'm telling you where I came from. Because uh, things and prestige and status became far too important to me. We lived in an unpleasant part of Jacksonville, but nonetheless, even there, the neighborhood children were not allowed to play with me. 
I'm sure now that their parents didn't know what was going on or never knew for sure what might be going on at our house and they were uh, understandably they were uncertain about it but I didn't know that then and I just felt total and complete rejection and my reaction was I'll show you and I did I started at school I could beat the socks off of them in the classroom and that became my way up and out and um, that too became too important it became vitally important to me my parents were divorced when I was eight my mother remarried a man who didn't drink at all and the economic situation improved just slightly we, we did have the necessities of life but I never forgot those early years I don't think we ever do I think we're programmed then and one of the uh, rules that I made for myself I guess was that I would keep the rules I did everything right if you didn't like me you would at least respect me and I spent the next 40 some odd years keeping the rules we were well into the program before I learned that I had kept the wrong rules all the time before you told me that there were spiritual laws and that they transcend they supersede man-made rules but I'll get to that in a minute my husband and I did everything right in getting married he had a master's degree and a job I had finished do you remember when people used to get married when they had a job and could support a wife back back in those days I had finished college and had taught school a year to repay a loan I had had to get through college and we did it just right all of that is to tell you there are no guarantees we had a, a stormy marriage before the drinking during the drinking and we have had a stormy sobriety I would be lying if I told you otherwise there are obviously more good days than bad more satisfactions than dissatisfactions and we are at least together today because we choose to be and not because we have that sick cloying entanglement with which we came to you people I didn't even date anyone who drank I had had drinking thank you it wasn't complacency or self-righteousness it was fear I just couldn't handle that and my husband didn't drink at all when we married and yet I think it was inevitable that I find myself an alcoholic our Al-Anon literature leaves us no cop-out on that point healthy stable well-adjusted people are not attracted to alcoholics sick people marry sick people and they rear sick children and that's one of the rules I didn't know I know now that I had an obsessively neurotic need for someone to be dependent on me and of course I found someone who had a need to be dependent and that's why I try to make it a point to tell you that that's no longer the case at our house uh, my husband gets along fine without me now and I don't have to have anyone dependent on me anymore in fact when I start to feel this in any relationship I feel as if I'm prying off the fingers you know that cling because I don't have to have that but I know now that if I had divorced this man during the drinking years I would have married someone else equally sick because I had to have someone to fill my neurotic needs and someone with neurotic needs to fill the drinking began so casually it slipped we were blindsided I, I just didn't see it coming we went from no drinking at all to blackouts in about six years uh, I don't know Charles sometimes says he thinks he was an instant alcoholic and perhaps so that isn't mine to decide but I do know it was upon us before we saw it coming and I was busy during those years we were moving around a lot and I hadn't heard of geographical cures I thought he was finding himself and he was changing jobs a lot but I was having the babies and I was busy and I didn't see it 
It was upon us. And I did, during the next 10 or 12 years, all the wrong things. I yelled and I screamed and I hollered and I gave silent treatments and I could stay mad longer than anyone you ever saw in your life. I didn't ever pour any out. Remember the poverty. I didn't waste anything. Uh, I think perhaps the most damaging thing I did was to protect him constantly from the consequences of his drinking. He was the most anonymous alcoholic in town. He was almost literally loved to death, and that can happen. And I have had to let go of my guilt over that. I did the best I could at my level of enlightenment. And I did what I thought a good wife did. Uh, those rules that I was following said this was what a good wife did. And this is what got me approval, and that was important to me. I would like you to think that I stayed with him during this time out of love and loyalty. I did not. I stayed out of pride. And I don't have to explain that either in the Deep South. You know the kind of upbringing I had. At least those of you of my generation had the same kind, I'll bet. Uh, we had cloth napkins in our home that were patched. I mean, when you're eating hoe cake and sugar, you still have cloth napkins. That's what nice people did. <laughs> Uh, my grandmother's farmhouse was very weather-beaten. She was too poor to paint and too proud to whitewash. I was taught that a lady carried a white linen handkerchief at all times I still do. You could tell a southern lady about her hands and her feet, and you took care of those no matter how hard you worked, and on and on. And uh, this kind of pride said you did not air your dirty linen in public. And if you lived with a man, you did not criticize him to other people. And so I stayed. Besides, I'd never failed at anything in my life. Uh, my husband's drinking was the first thing I had ever run across that I couldn't control. It really was. And I just kept thinking, if I try harder, <laughs> you know, if I push a little harder. I like the Peanuts cartoons. I think the most profound philosophy being published in the country today is in Peanuts. And I like the one... I like the one where Sally is doing long division and she's trying to put 50 into 12 and Charlie Brown tells her 50 won't go into 12 and she says it will if you push <laughs> that was my thinking the whole time I didn't understand people who messed up their lives you see I felt that I could match inauspicious beginnings with any one of them and I had coped and by golly so could they and I had married considerably above myself. Charles says I shouldn't say that. I don't know any other way to say it. I did. I mean, in every way you can think of, you know, money and, and status and economic and social and every other level, he was. And I thought, here's a man who was born with everything going for him. I mean, if anyone should drink, I should drink. You know, not him. I had no tolerance for or understanding of people who messed up their lives. I had at... Uh, you know, entirely at my own expense, gotten a fine education. I had married the man I wanted. I had the children I wanted. I don't have time to tell you about them. That would take another hour. I did work that I love, and I had no patience with people who couldn't cope with living. And I did not see that as self-righteousness. But I have to mention it because I have to come back to it in a little while and tell you what I learned about it. I did a few things right even during the worst years. I did not criticize him to the children, so that when he was able to love them again, they were willing and waiting to be loved. And at some level, somehow, I knew he was sick. 
I knew nobody would be that way because he wanted to be. No one sits around as a little boy or girl and says, when I grow up, I'm going to be an alcoholic. What are you going to be? You know, I knew that. That somehow this was something beyond his ability to control. I had during that time a God whom I worshipped and served, who was my handhold on sanity before I got to you people. Now, it was not God as I understand him today. And I hope that God as I understand him today is not the way I will understand him in another 15 years. But at that time it was vital for me. I had friends who gave me understanding, although there was no way they could understand. Do you know what I'm talking about? People outside the fellowship who were tremendously important in our lives and still are. And this was a gift. And then I had a doctor who was my Alamon before I found Alamon, and I say that because he's the one who used to say to me, uh, you have to do what is necessary for your sanity and your serenity regardless. And I had to have permission. And he would hit me where he knew it would hurt. He would say, your children have to have one stable parent, so you take care of you. He's the one who suggested I return to teaching. I had taught school before my children were born, but the rules said that no good mother worked outside her home. I felt sure that was graven on stone somewhere. At least I wasn't going to work outside my home. And uh, when he suggested that I return to teaching, I have to tell you that I weighed 220 pounds at that time. I had had rheumatoid arthritis diagnosed when I was 30. And... Uh, I couldn't lift the coffee cup without excruciating pain. I had severe incapacitating migraine about three days a week. And because I almost always forget to tell you, let me stop here and say that I only have to have cortisone about every three or four years now. I have had no terribly permanent damage from the arthritis. I have had surgery a couple of times on my feet to repair the damage. I uh, still have a migraine once in a while but they aren't the way they were. And uh, this is the woman who a year later was telling you, I'm fine, thank you. If you'll just tell my husband there's nothing wrong with me. But my doctor was telling me in 1962, why don't you return to teaching? I think it would help you. Get your mind off yourself. And I told him I couldn't do that. I said, I have two children. And he said, well, not between 8.30 and 4 o'clock, you don't. I'm not an impulsive person, and I had this thing about the rules. And so I thought about it for a year before I return to teaching. Now, there are those of you who would give me a good argument as to 140, 150, 17-year-olds a day being therapy for anybody. In fact, I have had people hint that if you weren't already sick, that would pretty well guarantee it. And I never talk without putting in a plug for today's kids. You're going to have to fight me if you want to criticize them and Please hear this with love, because I mean it that way, but I think I know more of them than you do. And I will venture that I know them better. I teach English to 11th graders in a very large and very fine high school. And um, because eventually most of them trust me, they will write how they feel. It's an advantage I have that their math teachers and science teachers perhaps do not have. And I think they have so much going for them that our generation missed. They're not hung up on things, for instance. And they have a concern and uh, a care for this planet on which we live that my generation didn't know. And they are open and honest and unphony. And they're touchers. I get hugged and, you know, hit. <laughs> Otherwise mauled around all the time. That wasn't done. They talk about things in that classroom that curl my hair. 
that we just didn't bring out for classroom discussion when I was in school. And they are a tremendous enrichment in my life. Uh, they know, by the way, that my husband and I are interested in the rehabilitation of alcoholics and their families. Now, I would not mind telling them of our affiliation with AA and Alamon. I don't in the least mind breaking anonymity. I mind breaking a tradition. And we feel that does constitute the public level for us. But they do know that we have an interest in the rehabilitation of alcoholics and their families and that I go from time to time to talk places. During the school year, I sometimes have to miss Friday or Monday depending on how far away the conference is. And I want them to know where I am and why. It's important to me that they not go home and say, we had a substitute today because our teacher was at a convention. You know the picture the word convention brings to most minds. You know, whoopee. And so they do know where I go. What they don't understand is why you come to hear me. <laughs> I have explained to them that I don't talk to you about prepositional phrases. I probably couldn't fill the room. Now, it's not one long honeymoon, okay? Some days I wish for retroactive birth control, but not usually. Usually we get along fine. That's what I was like. And what happened was a result of the fact that my husband never quit trying to find an answer. I respected him then and I do now for the fact that he knew something was dreadfully wrong and we never suspected alcoholism. I had the memory of my father, and Charles has an uncle who is, as far as we know, in his 70s, still drinking. And both their drinking patterns were different from Charles. Uh, I figured he could be an alcoholic because he didn't drink in the mornings. I mean, everyone knows an alcoholic drinks in the mornings. Because I protected him so diligently, he missed the hospitals and the jails. He said... <laughs> He drank at home, too. Uh, as Rhodes said last night, that the bars were not for him. He said he didn't want to go down there where those people were. And he will tell you when he talks that drinking at home is what guarantees you a crop of Alamans and Alatees. He would come home and drink until he passed out, and he drank only for oblivion. He says he has no fun drinking. That if, God forbid, he should ever do it again, he's heard enough stories in AA at least to know how to do it next time. <laughs> that when he hears about people who went from coast to coast with a bottle in one arm and a broad in the other, and he never had any fun drinking, <laughs> makes him think he wasted those years. But if he says, you don't get a DWI while driving a sofa, and that's where he spent most of his time. <laughs> he went to ministers. He went to doctors, he went through medical clinics, he went through both our local psychiatrists rather quickly, that didn't take long. And he went to laymen everywhere. And this was, you know, 18, 19 years ago. And the country wasn't as aware of alcoholism as it is now. And it was a counselor who sent us to the program. She was a strange eccentric lady, she was a psychologist. And his first appointment with her, this will tell you something about her, his first appointment with her was at 12.30 a.m. And it will tell you about him when I tell you that he kept it. He was there. And they went on from there. Six weeks later, it was in January of 1964, and I was still home from school for the Christmas vacation. She called me and she said, I need to talk with you as well as with your husband. He's an alcoholic. And I said, you're out of your mind and hung up. Now, this was not Deep South upbringing, okay? I had been taught, as I'll bet you were, in one way or another, that if you don't like someone, you can be kind of cool. 
but she had hit a nerve and I didn't want to talk about it. She called back before I could even leave the room and when I picked up the phone, she said, hey, wait a minute, I know how you feel. Well, she couldn't know. I hadn't told anybody. How could she possibly know how I felt? She said, I know what you've been through. I did go to see her and um, it was she who sent us to you all. That was in January. For six months, if anyone had the questionable judgment to invite me to Alamon, I was kind of cool and explained that I was quite all right, thank you. That if my husband was sober, we would have no problems. <laughs> and, uh, oh, God bless them. They loved me when I was so unlovable and forgave me when my behavior was well nigh unforgivable. I was condescending and patronizing and they let me be. <laughs> um, I have to remember that because every now and then God sends me an album like that <laughs> and I remember that I was forgiven when my behavior was unforgivable. For six months I went only to open meetings and I wouldn't go to one if uh, he was due to get a chip. Do you all give some memento of sobriety around here? Our group at that time gave poker chip key rings and if he was due to get one I wouldn't go, I didn't want to hear him say, my name is Charles and I'm an alcoholic. If I didn't hear it, you know it wasn't so. And then it was July and we were going to San Antonio for the 4th of July weekend. Now San Antonio is the most beautiful city in Texas, probably in the world, and if you're ever there, don't miss it. We had lived there and our children were born there and we love it. And we went back and Charles had a slip. He says, I must tell you, it was not a slip, it was a carefully planned drunk. At any rate, it was not the longest or the worst one he had ever been on. And when we were driving home, he said to me, I'm going to have to tell the group about this because I'm due to get a six-month chip next week. And in my total ignorance, I said, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> and he had to explain to me that's not what it was about. I have to tell you this because this is what got my attention. We had been married for 14 years at that time, and this man had never said to me, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, I was wrong. And he was going to go down there and say it to some people he'd known six months and I was mad. I thought I'd go take another look at them. But I couldn't understand why he could hear them when he hadn't heard me all this time. And I began Alan on then and I wish I knew the exact date, but I don't. And I have a very good memory. I can say that because I had nothing to do with it. Uh, Charles says we have five tape recorders and Blanche and if there's a conflict he'll take my word for it. And uh, I don't remember anything about the next eight months. I know that I went to Al-Anon because, oh, I hate to have to tell you this, but I will tell you, I used to say I don't know why the, the invitation of this particular woman reached me when the others had not, but I have done three, I think, very comprehensive, I know very painful inventories in the 15 years, and God has revealed to me more than I was interested in knowing about myself, and he has let me know why her invitation reached me. It's because this was a woman I thought was as good as I was. Okay? That's the way it was. I wish I didn't have to tell you, but that's the way it was. That was so important to me then. But here was someone with more money and, you know, lots of social prestige, the wife of a prominent local physician, and I thought to myself, if she finds something in there, do you suppose, just possibly? And so I decided to go look and uh, have no memory. I can't tell you how totally out of character that is for me. But I do remember that the following March, my mother died. She was 58. That is not young, but it's young to die. And she was my best friend, and I thought I could not stand it. 
And this group to whom I had given nothing but a hard time gave me massive emotional support and love. And that wall that I had built so firmly around myself began to fall brick by brick. I had tremendous resistance to the program. No one ever fought it harder than I did. Heels dug in, you know, protesting all the time. And I have, through these inventories, been granted insight into the reasons for this resistance. And some of you may be having some resistance to the program, and so I always feel I need to talk about it. Besides, it scares me when I think how close I came to missing it. I need to remember that. To begin with, although I had prayed for help, I thought God was showing very poor taste. I wanted to be the one to get him sober. These weren't the people I had in mind for doing it. And if I had been the one, then uh, he would have, you know, he would have owed it all to the love of a good woman. And he would have been grateful to me the rest of his life. And I would have seen to it that he was. I learned... I learned then that God does not use me where I tell him to. Sometimes if I surrender enough, he uses me, but I don't get to call the shots on that. I thought there was a terrible stigma attached to being an alcoholic. We meet in the same buildings in Texas, in different rooms, and um, I thought we ought to be issued badges at the door so we, you know, they could differentiate between us, and no one would mistake me for one of them. <laughs> For about five years, anyone meeting the two of us for the first time always assumed I was the alcoholic. <laughs> Our children, who were in Alateen ten years each, would come home from meetings saying, well, I, it happened again. I had to say, no, no, it's my father. He's the one that said, hey, <laughs> And then I suffered from what I have through the years come to call the saint syndrome. This happens to anyone living with an alcoholic who is told one way or another by well-meaning people, you're an absolute saint to live with that man. And I had soaked up all of that sick sympathy I could. Now picture, will you, the difference when I got to you all. No one thought I was wonderful. They thought he was. You know, the encouragement, 30 days, Charlie, hang in there, fellow. You know, 90 days, way to go. They not only didn't think I was wonderful, they kept hinting that I could use some help. And <laughs> nobody had ever done that to me in my life. And I was angry. They obviously didn't know who I was. Besides which... The first year and a half that we had in the program, we never had a pink cloud. You know, some people come in and euphoric. I, I wish we had. We didn't. It was unmitigated hell. It was, and I'm quite honest, it was worse than anything we'd ever had drinking. Charles was stark raving sober. He was very much aware of all of my defects of character. And he was no longer held back by guilt, you know, for mentioning them loudly and clearly and frequently. And I had never had verbal abuse like that. I have since learned it is not an uncommon phase of recovery in the alcoholic. If, uh, if it had been a permanent thing, I couldn't have lived with it. But it was a phase of recovery. And my group gave me very specific and concrete suggestions as to what to do and how to handle it and how to survive emotionally intact. But if you are new and you're having a rough time, some of us did. And not all of us had a pink cloud. I had so many barriers to the program. I, I don't have time to talk about all of them. Let me mention a couple of them. Um, this, this little girl who hadn't had anyone allowed to play with her and who had to do well in school because I'd earned her status and brownie points became a real intellectual snob. And I'm not that intellectual. But uh, 
being smart was what had gotten me everything I ever wanted. And I nearly missed the program because it was simple. I thought because it was simple it was easy. <laughs> if you had told me in words of ten syllables I would have listened better. And it was a while before I quit thinking that the slogans were cliches and that if any student of mine wrote using words that trite I would mark it as a margin. It was a long time before I heard people well, I had this idea that if you couldn't tell me something in beautifully lucid and precise English, you need not bother. That if you couldn't put, you know, one syllable after the other intelligently, you probably didn't have anything to teach me. And I had a sponsor who used to say, oh, Blanche, don't block the channels. She said, perhaps there are people. This is the woman whose invitation I had heard to Alamon. She said, perhaps there are people who hear voices and see visions, but most of us hear God through others. You know, he comes to us through other people. And don't block any channel through which he might reach you. I'm glad I learned that early on, because I have heard wisdom in all kinds of languages and from all kinds of people these 15 years that I would have been so sorry to miss. Now, I don't know if you ever block a channel or not, but I run across people who do. They cannot, I run across AAs who cannot hear anything from an alimony, and vice versa. I run across people who cannot hear anything from a young person, and I am taught so much on a daily basis by teenagers. I have run across those who cannot hear if God speaks to them through someone of another color or religious background or ethnic background or geographical location. And uh, we have no place, I think, in the fellowship for that. God even talks to me through people I don't like, and I think that's unfair. I wish you wouldn't do that. I have to listen to them, you know. We come into Alamon with voids in our lives, like empty wells. I live out in the oil country, and we understand what a dry well is. And these are big, gaping holes that are empty in our lives. Oh, let's say the, a well that would have contained self-acceptance, okay, or love. And I think we get into Alamon emotionally malnourished, just as some people have a physical vitamin deficiency. Does, does that make sense to you? So we need more than the minimum daily requirement for a while. We need enough for the current needs, but we also need some to put in the well. And I think this explains the tremendous emotional hunger with which we get to the program, and that it goes on for a long, long time. By the way, I think we can find these empty wells later, too. Every now and then I find another one. And there are a great many in my life that are full to the brim and overflowing. God has promised, by the way, that if he does not fill the empty ones, he will give me the grace to live with them. I think we come in emotionally frozen. Um, it is painful when the feeling comes back into a limb that has been frozen. And I think our growth is painful because the feeling comes back. Okay, it seems to me that when we're living in a painful situation, when someone is living with an alcoholic, and that is the only vantage point from which I can speak, I'm not claiming that Alamon has a monopoly on pain, all right? But I do know that in my case and that of many others with whom I have talked, we had the idea, even if we didn't verbalize it, that somehow 
these feelings had valves and we could turn off the one marked self-pity we could turn off the one marked anger or resentment and what I did not know was that there is one valve and it's marked feelings and when I quit feeling anger I quit feeling everything and I really did get to you emotionally frozen you have loved me back to life here again I find a little pocket every now and then that hurts and I realize that's a little frozen area that is just now thawing after all this time I think we get in with impenetrable walls around us we have chosen sometimes the pain of isolation rather than the pain of involvement at least involvement on anything beyond a superficial level and I have a respect for your wall if you have it you need it and I no longer try to batter down people's protective walls I used to you know let me in let me love you I don't do that anymore I do know that occasionally if you will look out from the chink in your armor I can wave and you may decide the natives are friendly and perhaps if I can love you enough it will help fall the wall around you too I had a group that in one way or another now the things I'm going to say did not come from one person at one time you realize that this was over the first few years when I was new and learning but the first thing I remember they're saying in one way or another was this is a family illness and the entire family is sick well the counselor who had sent us to AA and Al-Anon had given us a battery of psychological tests and I had come out disgustingly healthy normal emotionally sound they didn't test the things I later found in my inventories but nonetheless I didn't like the idea of having been sick they said if you don't think you're sick you won't inconvenience yourself to get well and it is inconvenient to do what you have to do in this program it took a while before I could accept that I needed any help at all if you got here knowing that you need help you're way ahead of where I was so you don't hear any answers if you think you already know all of them and I didn't hear any for an awfully long time when I finally decided that yes maybe I needed a little help I heard well do you want to get well even in the scriptures no one could be healed who did not want to get well some people need their neuroses they really need their illnesses some people need a sick marriage the miracle to me is not that we have uh, the dissolution of marriages sometimes after sobriety but that some of us uh, managed to survive them I must give up all of my fantasies and I had played let's pretend for so long of course we were a normal family <laughs> and I believed it it's like those pictures in encyclopedias where they have a human body on the sections on anatomy and they have plastic pages have you seen them and you will lay one over and then you see all the other organs I think of that because that's what I did with my life I deliberately put a fantasy over it and hung on to that and when I had to give up my fantasy then he had to give up his anesthetic we were two people who didn't know each other and I cannot think that's unusual and so they said do you want to get well do you need your sickness do you need your sick marriage and then they said if you both had cancer you would go for treatment whether he went or not and whether he liked it or not well I want I want to say always that Charles is strong in his support of Alabama he considers it part of his ninth step that he support what I do for Alabama there are people who have said to me doesn't he mind your being gone so much no 
If he did, I would do it anyway. Um, let me rephrase that. He says he might as well not mind. I would do it anyway. And he's right, I would, because I'm entitled to recovery. And evidently, this is God's assignment for my therapy at this point in time. But I do it with a great deal more joy and a great deal more comfort with his enthusiastic support. And that I do have. In fact, the last few months he's been attending Al-Anon, 15 years in AA, and he's been working at night a lot and um, was commenting that he'd missed a lot of meetings. And very casually, I guess to make conversation, I said, well, there are three daytime Al-Anon meetings a week, you know. I wouldn't ever have suggested that he go, and he's been going to one a week ever since. Whole new world for him. Now, you understand that's not to help him live with me. That's, that's strictly for his own recovery. <laughs> And then I began to hear, you have a lot of old ideas you're going to have to give up. You've been keeping the wrong rules. And oh, that was a hard one. Every time I hear chapter 5 read, and I hear we have to give up these preconceived notions, these preconceived ideas, I think, isn't it so? I was told, you cannot put new wine in an old vessel. God cannot, God can only fill an empty vessel, and so on. And I was taught by well-meaning people some things that are just not true. And I bet you were too. Some of them were not so serious, like God helps those who help themselves. That isn't so. God helps those who ask. And the times I have needed him most desperately, I could not have helped myself if my life had depended on it, and a few times it did, and he was there. They didn't mean to teach me the wrong thing. Uh, I was brought up that mature people are self-sufficient, independent, stand on their own feet. Did you get that one? It was a sign of weakness to ask for help. And southern girls, when I was growing up, could swish their skirts and flutter their eyelashes, but it was understood that they had stainless steel spines and they could cope. And we were survivors. Oh, I looked at my relatives at that family reunion and thought, man, this is where I came from. Any woman in my family could field an army like General Patton. You know? <laughs> it is not our most charming trait, but we are, we are all that way. And it was hard for me to ask for help. I was 35 before I could ask anyone to pray for me, and I grew up praying. I couldn't ask for directions in a strange town. I would buy a map, but you weren't going to know I didn't know. At one time, a woman who had been in Alabama a long, long time in another city before she moved to Odessa, asked to talk to me and when we got together she said I can feel you hurting all the way across the room you can be self-sufficient all the way to the mental hospital if you want to or you can learn to ask for help and I learned there was a hillbilly country western song popular along about then that said she didn't have sense enough to come in out of the pain I have sense enough today to come in out of the pain now I understand that some pain is necessary for my growth but misery is optional, and I do not opt for being miserable anymore. In fact, my husband will tell you every time he opens the telephone bill and looks at the long-distance charges that I have really learned to ask for help. <laughs> that is no longer a problem. I can say I need without being dependent on anyone. I learned only lately, the last three or four years, that I have a right to take care of myself. I was taught that we put others first always. This is what, uh, you know, good people did, and that was one of the rules I kept. And 
It was a long time before I heard you when you said, take care of yourself. I quit hearing it meaning get enough sleep, get enough rest. But that I have a right to take care of myself emotionally. And whereas some painful situations are necessary for my spiritual education, some are not, and I can avoid those. I just do not have to be in a lot of painful situations where I used to think that I did. And I have a right to let good things into my life. I am convinced today that God wills only good for me and that he, that I have sabotaged these blessings for so long that a few years ago I added a line to my daily prayer, my daily 11th step time, and I say something like this, please heal in me the self-destructive tendencies that cause me to sabotage the good that you send into my life. Because I would throw it away with both hands, and I don't have to do that today. I can accept it. I am well enough that when I am stuck in an airport for three hours in Denver or Pittsburgh or Timbuktu, I'll call a friend and say, come to the airport and have coffee with me. I couldn't have done that. I would have thought no one wants to drive in the traffic and, you know, to the airport. But I need somebody I call. I had to unlearn and relearn that one. In our One Day at a Time book for today, we talk about personal freedom. And I have said every time I've talked now for years and years and years that Alamon is synonymous with freedom for me. If I were given one of those word association tests and the man should say Alamon, I would say freedom. And yet I didn't know I had it for so long. My husband and I have a friend who lives out in the country and in West Texas, you have to picture this, it is not pretty in the country. Uh, it's a semi-desert and um, nothing grows unless you plant it and nurture it and take care of it so living in the country is hard out there and he lives alone and he has an enormous German shepherd when he's out of town he asks us to feed Caesar and we go and do this and I, I noticed one time Caesar will lick us to death but he isn't you know dangerous and I noticed one time that Caesar has a four foot fence around the yard where he is he could jump that one leg but he doesn't know it because when he was a puppy, he couldn't get over it. And he got it firmly in his mind that he was sent thin. And I see myself like Caesar so often, in a self-made prison of a fence that I could get over so easily. And I didn't know I could until you told me how. I was taught, among other things, to unlearn. What you don't know can't hurt you. Remember that? What I did not know nearly killed four people. What you don't know can kill you. And so I began to unlearn and unlearn before I could learn anything. And as I said a while ago, if you think you already know it all, it's awfully hard to learn something new. This new set of rules that you gave me, these spiritual laws, are just as real and just as irrevocable as the law of gravity. If I jump out of a 22-story building, I go down and not up, right? I have not broken the law of gravity, I have just illustrated it. Okay, I get to you and you tell me a resentment will make you sick. I never saw that written down anywhere, you know. That wasn't a man-made law. But I have found that when I carry a resentment and the migraine comes back and the arthritis comes back, I have not broken that spiritual law that says a resentment will make you sick. I have just illustrated it. And I do this with such regularity. You would think I would learn. I don't know all the spiritual laws yet. But I'm getting a grasp on a few more of them the longer I stay around you people. One of them, of course, is that we let go of that which we love. 
And if it comes back, it's ours, and if it doesn't, it never was. The first thing you hear in Alamon, let go of this person. You have not acquired squatter's rights on someone's life because you married him, or gave birth to it for that matter. If you don't like the warts, let go of the frog. That's what it said. <laughs> I would have released him to anyone that would take him at that point in time, you know, the Ku Klux Klan or the Communist Party. My sponsor had to keep saying, no, no, let's try it again. Now you do this with love. To this day, I sometimes release with anger before I can with love. And sometimes I have to withdraw emotionally for a little while before I can let go. That is the way it is with me. But I do let go, for my sanity as well as that of the people I love. I learned that God could work directly through my husband and children. I didn't know that. I thought he had to come through me. I had always told them God's will for their lives, and it came as a surprise when I found out they had, you know, their own lines to him. <laughs> and uh, I have to talk a few minutes about young people in the program. My children were now a teen for 10 years each because we had a preteen group at the time we went in. And they were the world's oldest alateens when they finally gave up and realized they better, you know, switch. And it's a whole different dimension to family living when you have children in the fellowship too. I wasn't allowed to be a martyr. And that was one of my favorite roles, you know, if you knew how I suffered. Um, I can remember incidents like my son was supposed to take out the trash. And when he was procrastinating, which he did and does, <laughs> whatever, I said, well, that's all right. Uh, my arthritis isn't too bad today. I'll take it out. <laughs> and he had been in that subversive organization, Alateen, long enough that he said, gee, thanks, Mother, and went right on with what he was doing. <laughs> I remember calling my daughter when she was away at college and saying, how do you say to someone, we'd like to hear from you without imposing guilt? And she said, you can't. <laughs> and I wasn't allowed to impose guilt anymore. You talk about being detached from. I had, as I think so many of us do, used these children to fill one of those empty wells, the void of companionship. And it was my son, who is a gentle and feeling person, who would come into the bedroom when I was crying during the drinking years. And I loaded on that boy's shoulder burdens that were not his, you know. And when he began to get some recovery through you people, when I tried doing that, let me tell you what, you know, he would say, uh, you do have a problem, don't you? I know you'll handle it very well. Zap. <laughs> With the greatest love and the greatest respect, but I was released. And of course, there is, there's no way I can be grateful enough to the very special people who work with our youngsters, who are so damaged and whom we have, on whom we have inflicted so much harm. I don't like crying speakers. I absolutely cannot stand it. And I will not do it. <laughs> there were some funny things, too. Our son is 6'3". It seems to me he's been that tall all his life. Surely not. But at any rate, I didn't like to look up at him and shake my finger in his face, so I would make him sit down. <laughs> and after we'd been in the program a while, and I was giving him the benefit of my wisdom one day, not that he had asked for it, you understand. I was really letting him have it. He said, Mother, don't. You're going to feel so bad when you're making amends for this later. 
Now, if you encourage me, I'll keep. I'll tell you one more, and then I've got to go. <laughs> but this is my favorite. Our daughter was 17 when she was asked to help with the first wedding. She was to serve cake at the wedding reception. Now, we have found have you, that we have a little trouble making small talk with people outside the fellowship. I'm not talking about those close friends with whom we are bound with great love. I'm talking about the casual chit-chat that goes on in social functions. And they've almost stopped asking me to women's parties because I'm so bored and I'm afraid it shows. But I keep thinking, what if I said, you know, one relevant thing? Or ask one meaningful question. Well, I know what would happen. They would be embarrassed. I made that mistake once walking into the school building with a colleague some years ago. And she said, how are you this morning? And I thought she wanted to know. You know, when you ask me, you want to know. And so I said, I'm mad as I can be. I had a fight with my husband at breakfast. I'm in a sniff. Well, she was just humiliated. She looked at the floor and the ceiling. And I, there's not a student I have to whom I could not say that. And I would get something like, you know, my old man's the same way. Some days it doesn't pay to get out of bed. Anyway, we had talked about the fact that it's not easy to make small talk for us anymore. And uh, yet I understand that not everyone wants to talk on that level. And so when my daughter said to the bride, I don't know how to serve cake at a reception, the bride said, well, all you have to do is hand the person a piece of cake and make some, you know, pleasant remark. I wasn't there, but our daughter swears that when she handed the first piece of cake to the first guest, she said, how are you handling your resemblance today? children in the fellowship too. <laughs> I was told that there's a spiritual law that says just because I'm aware of something being wrong it is not my job to fix it. That was a revelation. I think if we have one overriding symptom of untreated alanonism, it is Russian and rescue. I have to watch it. Not long ago I was telling some people in the airport how to get a boarding pass and they had not asked me how to get a boarding pass. But I thought I would tell them. <laughs> and if I don't bite my tongue, I will tell you how to run your convention. But I'm better than I was. <laughs> I like the Quaker idea that God allots responsibilities to us. And he calls this our bundle. And I'm able to ask, whose problem is it? Which is a way of saying, is this really part of my bundle? It may be that God had in mind someone else learning from that situation instead of from me. I didn't like being told I was responsible for my behavior. I liked being told I was not responsible for his. That made me feel good, but then in the same breath you told me I was entirely responsible for my own. Now see, when you're married to an alcoholic, you have a built-in whipping boy. Everything that goes wrong can be blamed on the problem, you know. And uh, I did blame everything on it. And suddenly my scapegoat was removed, and I was entirely responsible. I had been an emotional slave. I thought this was the rule, a good wife. If he got angry, I got angry. If he got depressed, I was depressed. It was as if I waked up in the morning and said, good morning, how do I feel today? Because it was entirely up to him. And this personal freedom that we talk about in Al-Anon is mine today. And I do not have to let my feelings depend on anyone else. Most of the time I can remember that. And that is a tremendous freedom. It also frees the people in my family. They don't have the burden of trying to make me happy anymore. You told me to look at the source. 
that all the good in my life came from God and if he used people fine but he would find some channel through which to bless me and I couldn't tell him which one and that I could love the channel but I must remember the source that if I did a good third step I had a God-centered life and that he did not come in uninvited but once I had asked him he took me at my word and he had systematically and thoroughly removed anything or anybody I have put in the center since then and it scares me to put anybody in the center now I do learn slowly oh do I learn slowly but I do learn and as far as I'm able this morning I can tell you I can tell you that uh, I have a God-centered life rather than that centered on some other person you told me so much about love I don't have time to talk about it all but it was not dependency that if we ever said I love you if it isn't love but it has to be given freely the only time love hurts is when it's not given for free when we want something in return if it's, it's the way we were built to function if God is love and I believe that he is and if we are made in his image and I believe that we are then I cannot function on those negative things anymore the anger, the self-pity, the resentment it's like throwing sand in an engine so I love you this morning because I choose to and you have nothing to say about it I do it because it's necessary for my recovery because it's a whole lot more fun for me I learned that we neither can give it on our terms all the time nor do we receive it on our terms all the time I learned that love is a commitment with no guarantee and sometimes it is a commitment when it is not an emotion I think in any long-standing relationship there are ebbs and flows parent child husband wife friend friend and I no longer panic when we are at an ebb tide in our marriage and when we hit one of those spells I used to get so scared and I don't anymore I think that emotional intimacy is terrifying for some people and they cannot handle it for sustained periods of time and during the other times we have learned to survive by giving each other affection and respect and support it was a while before I could talk about that too I did not learn this program all at once I have learned it incident by incident one day at a time through blood sweat and tears for 15 years I can tell it to you smoothly that's not how I learned it there are still days when I think what program God who but now I know to call people who will remind me what program and who will tell me God who of course I talk the talk better than I walk the walk but I walk the walk better than I feel the feeling and that's what I'm after today I've got to close and I want to tell you a couple of things when I said that I did not learn it all at once I have learned it in kind of layers I like Carl Sandburg's statement that living is like peeling an onion we do it a layer at a time and sometimes we cry and that's how I've learned everything you taught me I could get a handle on a little bit of it and then a few years later I could get a little deeper into it and I like to use acceptance as an example because it's the third part of our triangle where the AA triangle says recovery in Alamon it says acceptance and I came to you thinking that meant approving of everything so the first thing I heard and the only thing for a long time was that acceptance does not mean approval I can accept where I don't have to approve or disapprove condone or condemn and then sometime later I learned that we do not accept the unacceptable 
This is true on either side of the fellowship. And what is unacceptable to me might not be to you. And vice versa, no one can tell you what is unacceptable behavior on the part of someone else for you. But we do not accept that. We do not have to stay where it is. That acceptance does not mean just grim resignation. It isn't gritting your teeth and enduring. I have a friend who teaches blind children. And she says she can tell from the child which one has parents who are just resigned to the child's blindness and which one has parents who have accepted it. Because acceptance is a calm appraisal of reality. It is looking at the situation and saying, okay, this is the way it is. And then what, if anything, am I supposed to do about it? And I'm not always supposed to do anything about it. Acceptance and looking at reality means that I know what choices I have available. Now here's where you come in. We don't give advice in the fellowship. And I used to say, well, what do we do? Well, what we do is help each other see what our available options are. When I got to you, I thought I had three choices. I could divorce this man. I could live with him while we both tried to recover in the program. Or I could have a close, warm, loving, communicative marriage. Unfortunately, number three was not one of my available choices at that time. And of course, that's the one I chose. And to this day, anytime I am miserable, I have opted for something that is not one of my available options. And sometimes you can see those better than I can. When I work with young people, young in the program, new people, who are trying to give up their fantasies, I find one that's the hardest to go is that of if he or she was sober, then my husband, my wife, will become the person I always fantasized. Do you run across that? I used to think if Charles were sober, he would remember birthdays and anniversaries. It's only because he drinks that he doesn't. <laughs> ah. Sobriety, <laughs> sobriety does not confer upon the alcoholic traits of character that he's never, never had. It's, uh, he becomes who he is. And that's the only way he can get well, is being who he is. And I have had, uh, well, most recently, a young woman whose mother sobered up and did not become the lady with the fluffy apron in the kitchen baking cookies. And this girl thought always if her mother didn't drink, that's what she would do. And we have to give the person the freedom to be whoever he is. Once I truly accept the person, just the way he is, or the situation, God always performs one of two miracles. He either changes it or he gives me the grace to live with it. And it doesn't matter which miracle. He either fills that empty well or he gives me the grace to live with it empty. My current level of handling acceptance. And I've been here several years, and I'm sorry I don't have a new one to give you, but this is still where I am. I haven't gotten the hang of it yet, I guess. It's not only to look at reality, but to thank God for it, whatever it is. And I'm not good at this yet. And I have to sometimes pray to mean it when I'm thanking Him for a reality that I don't like. But that's what acceptance truly is. Not because I'm glad of an unpleasant situation, but because without fail in the past, he has brought good out of all of them. And I can thank him for whatever situation there is, knowing that this time he will bring good out of it too. I can express my gratitude beforehand. It would be phony if I said thank you for arthritic pain or mechanical problems in airplanes or whatever. But it is not phony because I say it with the idea of you've always brought good out of every defeat, every agony, every heartbreak. 
In the marvelous economy of God, none of this suffering has ever been wasted. But as the check says in California, the experience and then the lesson. And so I know that this won't be wasted either, and I can thank him for it. Increasingly, I'm able to do that. You know, Western Florida says there's a difference between gratitude and thanks. Now, you understand, and I understand this isn't a dictionary difference. But I have learned from you so much about words. A few years ago, I was having a friendly argument with a student about the meaning of some word. And in true English teacher fashion, I said, but the dictionary cleanly says... And he said, you can't always go by the dictionary. Well, you would have thought he had spit on the flag. You know, I was... <laughs> he said, the dictionary says that a dog is a four-legged canine animal. And if you've ever had a dog, you know that's not a good definition. And I have had a few dogs, and that's not a good definition. I knew that the grace of God meant the unmerited favor. You know, I mean, I'm reasonably bright, and I have a pretty good vocabulary, and I knew that. But I got to you and you said it was God doing for me what I could not do for myself. And that's the definition that I like. And so Wes's definition of gratitude and thanks is that if you're thankful, you're glad it happened. But if you're grateful, you want to do something in return. Maybe that's why we, we speak of being grateful in the fellowship. I learned about gratitude on levels two. I can tell you that um, for a long time I felt great pride in what I saw as my accomplishments. Coming from behind, getting the education, the marriage, the work, the children. And you know, I learned from my AA friends about gratitude. I never heard one of them being proud of his sobriety. Always, always an alcoholic is grateful for it. And it was some years before it began to sink into my mind that just possibly these things in which I took pride as being my accomplishments were gifts from God for which I should be grateful instead. And I try very hard to remember the difference in gratitude and pride today. If something good happens and someone says, oh, I know you're so proud, my immediate reaction is, oh, no, I'm grateful. He does bring good out of the suffering. And increasingly, I'm able to thank him for it. I will tell you that this man whose illness resulted in severe acrophobia, who couldn't be beyond the first floor of the hotel because he was so terrified of heights, has in the last year taken flying lessons, gotten a pilot's license, and bought a plane. He acts like an alcoholic, I swear he does. <laughs> Now, I am not the world's most comfortable passenger on an airplane. I don't let my full weight down on the 727. <laughs> you can imagine what I do in our little Cessna Skyhawk. But it has done a great deal for his self-image and uh, for his morale to learn a whole new skill at this point in his life. These children are fine, thank you. And I mean that literally, thank you. These children that you help to heal. Our daughter is 25. She was married in April. And I wasn't going to cry at the wedding, and I didn't until she did. And when she was taking, reciting her vows, her voice broke. And I sat there and cried, thinking sobriety made this possible. Because you told her about personal freedom, she said there was no rule that said your attendant in the wedding had to be a girl. And that her brother was the person she was closest to in the world, and that's who she wanted with her. 
And so he stood with her. He was fine. He said, I've never been a bride's person before. <laughs> I want you to know that because during the drinking years when they were both so sick and so angry and so hostile, I used to cry and think, once they leave this house, they'll never speak to each other again. And I watched this strong, handsome young man stand beside her and felt tremendous gratitude to you. I will add, just by way of interest, that her husband then said, well, actually, I'm closer to my sister than I am my brother, so he had his sister stand with him. We had a man of honor and a best woman. <laughs> Why shouldn't you have the people you love most with you, right? But see, you gave her that freedom. And our minister was a very beautiful young woman who graduated from Baylor with our daughter. Other than that, it was your normal run-of-the-mill wedding. <laughs> our son is 24. He is a professional photographer in Dallas, and because I do go around a lot, I have time at the Dallas airport, which is the world's largest, <clears throat> by the way. And uh, you expect me to act like a text, and I have to put in a cute little thing. <laughs> and he comes out and sits with me for a while, and we have dinner, and we talk. When, um, when my husband was going to join me for the family reunion, he flew our plane as far as Dallas, and then went on to Miami commercially. But he did that because our son had called and said, come a day early and stay with me. When you start home, plan an overnight in Dallas. And you gave them this. You know, they didn't, they didn't have this. And I, would, I don't want to leave you with the impression that everything is always perfect. I hope I have been honest enough that you know better than that. I have found, though, that when you've been in a long time, as I have, there are people who expect everything to be perfect. Now, those of you who are long-timers, do you find that? That we're not allowed to be sick anymore. Let me say something to those of you who are new. What I am learning in Al-Anon is just as new and frightening to me and untried as what you are learning. It's at a different place and it's on a different level, but I live on the growing edge, too. And uh, it's an exciting place to be, and it is a spiritual adventure, but it still hurts. And I need a hand to hold when I'm looking around corners, just as you do. So give us, please, the right to continue to be sick and to get well. In the school where I teach, we have an exemption plan whereby a student with an A average doesn't have to take the final exam, and if he has a B, he doesn't if he only has one absence and so on. And so at the end of every quarter when we're averaging grades, I hear all of these threats and coercions and pleas, you know, to forget one of the absences or whatever. And I think how much like me these young people are. I had made all the grades and I thought I should be exempt from the exams. Life had no right to test me because I had, I had studied and I had done all the right things. And uh, if I had been picking out the greatest blessings in my life, I would have missed the ones that have meant the most. You are a beautiful audience. Sometimes during the six years, I would shake my finger in God's face and back him into a corner. Don't you know he was scared? and demand to know why me, why me. And so many times during the last 15 years, when I have been touched with the beautiful love that I have felt from you, thank you, you did love me back.
I think in an entirely different way, you know, by me. I don't know what I've ever done to deserve this.